Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Kicker. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Daryl McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Gentlemen, my fellow sporting tragics, welcome to episode number 15 of Amato's Fifth Quarter. I'm your host, Dan, and 15 episodes already, man. It's gone really quick. I still remember that first episode with Dustin Fletcher. I still remember episode two with Al Green, episode three with uh, Travis Dodd, episode four with Greg Oddy, five Tyson Edwards, list goes on. As I say, every episode, hopefully you do enjoy what I have to to provide. Hopefully you enjoy the interviews and enjoy listening to high-profile sports people delve into their careers because I certainly do. It gives me a great thrill to chat to these people over the phone and and just to pick their brains and listen to to the successes, the failures and and everything they've gone through in their life as well as their sporting careers. It's a really, really good experience. So hopefully you will drop me a thumbs up and a rating and a review and tell your friends and family about it because any way you can spread the word definitely helps Amato's fifth quarter build its audience base and hopefully allows me the opportunity to, to be able to get more guests on the show. That's definitely what I'm tr- trying to work towards and, and hopefully you guys can help me make that happen. But anyway, let's get into episode 15 because tonight we've got another big guest coming on the show. Uh, we've got a basketball guest who is one of the legends of the NBL. We've got Sean Redditch, who is my special guest tonight. Now, one of the very best players we've seen here in the NBL. And without a shadow of a doubt, he is one of the very best players to ever play for the Perth Wildcats. You look at their list of, of just unbelievable talent. Ricky Grace, James Crawford, the Alabama Slammer, Scott Fisher, Damian Martin, Bryce Cotton, James Ennis, Tiny Pinder, these sort of guys who have played for the Perth Wildcats. He is 100% in that mold. He came here to Australia in 2004 where he played one season of basketball with the New Zealand Breakers. He would then shift across to the Perth Wildcats for the 2005 season and there he would remain until his retirement in 2017. Throughout his 13 years here in Australia playing in the NBL, he played 393 games, 380 of them for the Perth Wildcats, which still to this day is number two behind the great Ricky Grace. He scored 5,819 points, 
2,154 rebounds and 1,004 assists. He is a four-time NBL champion in 2010, 2014, 2016, and 2017. So he is one of the very rare players who was able to win a championship in his final ever game at the professional level. He's a two-time All-NBL first-teamer. He was the captain of the Perth Wildcats as well for many years. And he, of course, represented Australia in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. So he's an Australian citizen and he now calls Australia and Perth home. So to sit down and have a chat with Sean Redditch was was great. He's a lovely guy and was, as I said, a very good player. was known as the scoring machine. Without further ado, let's bring him on from the New Zealand Breakers, the Perth Wildcats and the Australian Boomers. It's Sean Redditch about to come to the ground. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today we are very lucky to be joined by the great Sean Redditch of the New Zealand Breakers and the Perth Wildcats. Sean, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks Daniel, I'm, uh, I'm excited, let's get into it. <laughs> very excited to have you on. I remember, Sean, watching you play as a kid and a teenager and all of a sudden, just like that, it's been three and a half years since you hung up the boots. What have you been up to in the last three and a half years since since you retired? Do you miss the game? Uh, do you get itchy feet when you when you watch the boys out there? And yeah, what have you been up to since retirement? Yeah, look, I uh, thanks for uh, for the question, and it's, it is a tough one um, when you you know you spend your whole life preparing to be uh, an athlete, and you're the lucky one to be a professional athlete, and then being able to uh, I guess kind of figure out that next chapter of your life. It was, um, it, it, it's tough because it's such a, a passionate, um, I guess, profession when, you, when you're an athlete, you throw your heart and soul into something. And I think for me, it was trying to find something that I could sink my teeth into and find that same passion. Um, and something I really enjoy is, uh, is coaching. So uh, I've got a um, basketball program that I run over here in WA and in Perth. Um, we've got about 40 primary schools that we, we coach at currently and then doing some, um, I guess, more advanced stuff as well. So with, uh, with they call it the Wobble, the West Australian Basketball League, those kids over here. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm able to kind of teach the next generation uh, at the primary school level all the way up until the advanced ones, the ones that, you know, eventually want to go to on to college and, and potentially go play professionally. So, uh, you know, still been able to stay in the game. Um, it's called Reddish Basketball, and uh, yeah, we're having uh, having a lot of fun with it. And it's it's growing, and I can just see how popular basketball has has gotten. Um, I guess over these last four or five years, it seems to just be exploding, especially here in WA. Pretty fortunate to uh, still be able to stay involved in the game. Obviously, still doing um, some of the commentating stuff with the NBL, which I absolutely love. Uh, it, it is hard kind of to be cut cold turkey off that team environment, but for me to still get to be courtside and, and seeing all the great players in the NBL and I guess still being connected from it, that still gives me a little bit of a taste. It, it's, it is hard some, some games, especially come finals time, you want to be out there. Um, I, I miss the games, but I probably don't miss waking up feeling sore and uh, <laughs> after a game and with all the bumps and bruises and, and struggling to... Uh, Absolutely. Sean, I just want to take you back to early days. You were born in Florida, grew up in Nebraska. You started out playing high school basketball for uh, for Lincoln East High School, is that correct? That is, the mighty Spartans. <laughs> and you were named Nebraska Player of the Season, so did you, did you know from a young age playing high school basketball that you were good enough to make it professional ball? Uh, look, probably professional was a little bit out of where my goals were at when I was young. Um, I think, obviously, yeah, I grew up a huge Michael Jordan fan in that era, so uh, you, you're trying to emulate Michael Jordan. But for me, growing up in Nebraska, I was just trying to get a, a college scholarship and go play Division One. It was, but I knew it was going to be tough because Nebraska, not really, they're more known for their gridiron there. I think my senior year, so my last year in high school, we only had two kids in the entire state go on and get Division One college scholarships. So, you know, the, the, the recruiters weren't knocking on coming to Nebraska to watch uh, watch us play. They were going to California and Texas and Florida. 
you know, where a lot of the, uh, I guess, the bigger name players come out of. So it was it was kind of an uphill battle, but it, it, I, I still remember I kind of set that goal to, to get a Division One college scholarship. I was, I was pretty lucky as well. I had two older brothers that um, were pretty good at sports. One went on to play uh, soccer in college and played a little bit of semi-pro, and the other one played gridiron um, in college as well. So they, that really prepared me. They didn't take it easy on me. I had to fight for everything I got. So I think uh, just just having to, I guess, kind of have that little underdog mentality, uh, I think has kind of set me up. But, you know, playing professional basketball probably wasn't in the realm of things. I just wanted to go on and see if I could play Division One and just kind of see what happened from there. Because you also played prep soccer and won a state championship, didn't you? Yeah, I, d- I did win a state championship. There's a little bit. My brother was a, a pretty good soccer player. And uh, I think in my bio, it still says that I led the team to the state title. The, the, the reality was, and we still joke about this with my brother, is uh, he was the star of the team and I was the backup goalkeeper. So <laughs> I think uh, I played a, a probably about three whole games during that whole season. So, yeah, but we did win the state title. Um, in soccer, which was a, an awesome experience, and, and I really enjoyed soccer. I think it's it's uh, it was something that helped me out on the basketball court, especially the footwork and the fitness. Um, it was probably my first love, but I guess when you get to be six foot seven, six foot eight, there's not too many of those guys running around on a soccer field. So I probably chose the right sport there. Yeah, it's a rare commodity. You pretty much answered the question, but did, did any skills you developed from soccer help you in your professional career in the NBA and just basketball in general? Yeah, I think there was two things. I think fitness-wise, I always kind of prided myself on being able to, to kind of outlast my opponent, um, just running up and down the basketball court. Um, so I think that helped me. And then second, I think footwork. I, I mean, I, I guess my game, if you looked at my game, you wouldn't say it was a typical what they would teach, um, you know, growing up as a basketballer. I kind of had a little bit awkward footwork and stuff, but it was actually effective because I think – it wasn't uh, it wasn't what uh, other players were used to seeing. So I think from a footwork point of view, and then also cardio, and I think also there's there's some strategy around soccer where you're moving the ball around side to side to try and get those angles. I think that carries over to basketball in the, in the team setting. So there's definitely some similarities. But I think the other thing that was important for me growing up was it was kind of my outlet from basketball. You know, basketball became my kind of focus but I just needed you know high school season over there is broken up into three seasons so you've got the fall winter and spring and so come spring I, you know I had a long preseason of basketball had the winter season where we had our season come spring I was just ready to have a little bit of a break and so being able to go into a different sport where it was kind of it wasn't as serious it was, had a bit of fun with it I think allowed me to enjoy the basketball when I came back to it I think sometimes maybe these days, uh, you know, kids are just one sport the whole year, and I think it can be a little bit of burnout. So I think it just kind of it was a healthy break for me growing up as well. So the way you're talking, it, it seems like you never soccer wasn't something you ever saw, for want of a better term, a future in. It was always basketball was your main board of choice. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, a lot of my good friends were actually soccer players, and probably so I kind of played it. Um, you know, it was, it was, I was probably more serious about soccer when I was younger, but as I got to about 13, 14 is when I got more serious with basketball. But it was, um, you know, I still still quite enjoyed watching soccer, and, uh, and you know, especially at that really high level, you know, you watch EPL and, and those guys are just incredible at what they do. Do you get into the A-League at all? Do you watch Perth Glory? Yeah, I do. So I take my son uh, to the Glory Games a bit, and uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoy it. It's um, it, it's it's a good little atmosphere there. We just sit on those little grassy hill there, and sometimes my son will go back and be playing um, a little pickup soccer with with the other kids and, and watching. You know, Diego Castro over here in Perth Glory, he is incredible. He's fun to watch the way he just takes people on and he just plays different than than the other players in the A-League. So I really enjoy watching him play as well. He's definitely, in my opinion, probably the best player we're lucky to have here in Australia at the moment. Uh, I would agree. He's just so creative. And, um, you know, he, he draws people to the game. You know, every time I get a chance to go watch him live, I just, I love the fact that he will take guys on and he might fail half the time. But when he pulls it off, it just looks spectacular and he creates so many opportunities where I find a lot of um, the other players are just trying to 
pass the ball around. I love the fact that he's taking guys on one-on-one so much. The A-League is, especially when you compare it to EPL and a few of those other leagues, it's sort of a slower style of play. But Diego Castro, you can tell he's come from one of those other leagues. He's not a natural A-League player, which is obviously good for the league. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, uh, you know, taking guys out of you know, different countries and, and growing up. And it probably, I'd imagine, you know, he grew up just playing on the streets and, you know, trying to have to play one-on-one so much. Whereas I think... In Australia, it's probably a little bit more team environment where you don't get that chance to really be creative on a consistent basis. And, um, you know, you, you see the best best players are coming out of places like Brazil and stuff where they're just playing all the time. It's um, yeah, even in basketball in the U.S., you know I, know, I know for me, I just grew up playing in the driveway, just playing one-on-one and just trying to have to be creative to try and score on my older brothers that they blocked me half the time. And that, that brings us back into your basketball career. You did play college ball at the Arizona State. You played with the uh, the Sun Devils. What are your memories from college ball? Because you played with some future NBA players like Eddie House and Tommy Smith. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, it, was, uh, it was a great experience. I was pretty lucky in that um, when I went to Arizona State, they, were, they just hired Rob Evans. So he was kind of in that cleanup mode. So it was kind of that first freshman class that came in. We had about six freshmen. Um, and then we had Eddie House as well, so he was a senior, and we just kind of fed them in the ball. I think, you know, I always tell the story um, that uh, him and I combined for 76 one game. He had 61, and, and I had 15, so um, <laughs> <laughs> he was just, uh, I mean, I've never seen a guy be able to get his shot off that quick. He, he kind of reminds me of, um, I guess you can compare him to kind of Bryce Cotton in the NBL these days, but his ability just to, for a small guy to get a shot off was, uh, you know, I learned quite a bit from him and um, college. We, we kind of had our ups and downs throughout that. You know, I, I was starting my freshman year, started most of my sophomore year, but then kind of uh, got dumped back to the end of the bench my uh, sophomore year or my junior year before kind of midway through my senior year, I kind of got back into the into the lineup and um, kind of finished my, my year off with, or I guess my career off with the high, but it was, uh, it was a, it was a learning experience. You know, I think I came into college and, and probably used to being the, the best player on a team and you kind of have to adjust um, and you had got to get better. I, was, I wasn't a very good three point shooter. Um, and, and when you get to that college level, they, they quickly find you out. So I had to develop my game. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, the, the fact that I did have to develop probably helped me for, for uh, I guess, good stead going into the, you know, professionally as well. So what would you say some of the differences are between college and, and professional basketball? Well, I mean, I, I would say probably on a college team, obviously they're younger, but you've got some incredible athletes. I, I know I just had to really adjust my game because I was... You know, even though you're six foot eight, you're going up against guys six ten. So you kind of got to get creative, get your shot off, and, and be be productive there. So you know, you're probably across the board. You probably got better athletes in college, um, but when you get to the professional level, you just it becomes you got to become a, a smarter player. You know, the the IQ of the professionals is a lot higher. So you're um, you know you've got to be able to read. You got to play within a a team team offense but then also kind of excel so you kind of see some of those guys that come out here they may have great college careers um, but when they gotta when they gotta kind of fit their individual skills into a team environment some of them kind of struggle at that next level um, and I guess that's probably where for me I quite enjoy the professional game because I'm, I'm playing against guys who are all high IQ players and so everyone's kind of on, on the same page and um, yeah, I quite, there was times where I called, and when I was playing professionally, I'd go back and kind of play that pickup ball and it just gets a little bit too one-on-one. I was used to, you know, really moving the basketball, trying to find that open, open shot. And, uh, so I, I really quite enjoyed the, the NBL game where you really have to play the team. Before you came to the NBL, you went undrafted in the 2003 NBA draft. How, how does the NBA draft work? Is it, is a college player automatically entered into the draft do you have to apply yeah I, honestly i don't i don't i well, i'm assuming you have to put your name into the draft i didn't put my name into the draft because i wasn't going to get drafted i had a workout with the phoenix suns um at one stage but it was more i think just a favor to uh 
the time. Um, you know, I got to go into the locker room and um, I guess just be on the same court as, as those guys. But uh, my understanding, you, you do have to put your name into the draft. But, I mean, I averaged eight points in college. Um, didn't set the world on fire. I don't think anyone was looking for for me um, to, 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 get, to get to it. But it's a, uh, you know, and I think there's almost a little bit of a stigma these days on the seniors that they haven't gone and put their name in the draft yet. So, you know, you... It, it, it almost is becoming tougher for the seniors to get drafted because they kind of feel like you haven't, um, you, you should have put your name in a little bit earlier. You weren't talented enough. So it's, um, but there is, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of, you know, I've, I've got teammates who have gone through that process and Tommy Smith, who played with me, got drafted in the second round. Akiyaku was the number nine pick. He was, he came in, he was the second best freshman in the country my last year at Arizona State behind Carmelo Anthony so he uh, you know he was it was a hot commodity out of there and you just get NBA teams showing up at trainings all the time just watching um, and scouting so it's a it's a pretty um, they do a lot of research that's for sure hi all quarter time here in A5Q and that means going back to last week's episode where I sat down and had a chat with former Adelaide United Melbourne Victory Central Coast Mariner and Newcastle Jet Marcos Flores. We go through his career growing up in Argentina, coming through the ranks and making it to Australia, and also what he's doing now, bringing up the new generation of footballers with his Adelaide Atletico. Here's a little snippet of it. And people doesn't doesn't stop thinking about it. You know, they don't. Ah, no, I, he doesn't. He cannot score the goals with the he did one year ago. So, yes, I was playing nearly nearly as a. As a eight or whatever it was, post nine, going back um, to defend if Liam Rose or the right back go forward, I was tracking them things that I didn't do in Adelaide. So football, football is funny. I mean, it was it was fantastic Adelaide uh, on on the field and off the field was interesting. Um, was interesting because um, I never felt the love that the fans had with me. Um, I never felt it from the club perspective. They straight away when I did good, they wanted to, they show me the doors and they said, okay, that's it. And I had two years contract back in the day and I wanna, I wanted to stay. And then the Chinese club came, came through and they do with Adelaide and then they let, they, they told me, look, you got a Chinese club that wanted to pay. Marcos Flores is an absolute gentleman and for him, he's done his time in football and he wants to now give back to to children growing up who want to play football and just to help them be better people as well as better footballers. So to sit down and have a chat with him was fantastic. You definitely got to go check that full episode out. But for now, let's get back to four-time NBL champ, Sean Redditch. Are you disappointed you, you never got to play in the NBA? Because obviously it always has been and, and likely always will be the best basketball league in the world. Look, I, obviously I would have liked to have a, had a chance. Um, it was one of those things, it was going to be tough. I think my game probably, probably not, didn't have the athleticism to really play at the NBA level. Um, skill-wise, I felt like I could I was right there, but and then it's just an, an opportunity. Um, I know there's guys that um, you play against, and you know, but and, and at the NBA level as well, you kind of got to find your niche and your role. Um, and but yeah, I mean, it obviously, I think that's the ultimate goal when you when you're growing up. But I think I was pretty, uh, I was pretty happy that I was still able to play professionally, and you know, I came out here to Australia just to give it a try for one year before I went and got a real job. And, uh, you know, I guess that was 2004 and 16 years later, I'm still here. So I'm pretty, pretty fortunate with, with uh, how my career panned out. Yeah. Cause you arrived in Australia, as you said, 2004 with Northwest Tasmania Thunder in the Seabull. You went on to win the league MVP that year. Before you came to Australia, did you know anything about the NBO at all? Uh, so, I had traveled um, my, when I was with Arizona State, so in 2001, we came out on a, a summer trip um, out to Australia, and we played, we played in Melbourne, we played, went to Sydney, we went to, um, 
and then we went went up to Cairns. So we played about five or six games, and that was kind of my first introduction to Australia. We got to play. We didn't play any NBL teams, but we played against the Institute of Sport at the time. And we played against a lot of the Siebel teams, and then also the Cairns Marlins up in um, up in Cairns. So kind of get a taste for what um, Australian basketball was. Um, love the country. I was. We had a blast out here. Um, and so then when I finished college, um, to be honest, the only job offer I got was actually I got two offers. One was in New Zealand um, to go play in the New Zealand league, and the other one was um, to play with Tassie and Northwest Tassie Thunder. So um, I, I took the Thunder job with the idea that I could hopefully get the chance to play in the NBL. I thought playing in Australia would give me the chance to kind of get from that second division to the first division probably a bit naive at the time but honestly I just wanted to give it a try for a year that was the only offer I had so I was um, uh, you know you sometimes you just gotta take what you get and just try and make the most of it well you did that because you won the Seabull South Conference Championship but did lose the ABA final to Cairns that season yeah that was a tough one we um, you know we weren't the deepest team but we um, I, I love the team that we had we just had guys that uh, knew their role and um, you know, we uh, we had our chance. I think we were up 15 that year against Cairns, and they had, they had quite a good team. They had a young Nate J.Y. and uh, a few other guys that were playing. I think Grabeau, they had Grabeau, and we just ran out of steam a little bit. I think we had, um, you know, we were playing with a rotation of seven, maybe eight players, and that was our third game. And, uh, you know, a dream season as well. It left a little bit of uh, a bad taste that we didn't win that that night. And the season, the season following, that prompted you to go to the New Zealand Breakers. You played 13 games in that 04-05 season, averaged 12 points, four rebounds, one assist. Breakers start this season in their new stadium, the Waitakere Stadium in Auckland's western suburbs. Coach Frank Arcego, the assistant when the Breakers started last year, had some new faces starting the game this season. First up, Mike Chappelle, who joined the Breakers mid-season and went on to become the Breakers' MVP. Ben Pepper, the Australian giant, and ABA star Sean Redhage. Sean Redhage with the blocks, just walked on the court. For the breakers. Yeah, Redhage there got fouled and made the and made the shot, so he gets the two points and will go for the, go to the free line for the free throw line for the one. Here he is, they get the ball inside. He goes up, fakes, straight into the body, and one. Much better. Coach is happy. Redditch, the new man, banks two more for the Breakers. Pump fake by Redditch. Nice two points. Oh, my goodness. Redditch, his confidence must be sky high now. Redditch takes the charge. He sure does. So he's in a bit of a purple patch. Sean Redditch. And now on the fast break at the other end. Don't hang on the furniture. Redditch, it's a statement in the NBL. You started as a standout performer, but your form dropped a little later in the season until you were eventually cut. What are your memories of, of the New Zealand Breakers, and, and did you enjoy living in New Zealand and being in the NBL? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it was, you know, and, and that you go back, that was it. You know, they, they came and watched me play. Actually, their assistant coach at the time had been, he was from Tasmania. He came and watched a, a game. Um, that we were playing in in Devonport at the time, and I think I had a, a pretty good game, and so then that kind of started the conversation to go to New Zealand Breakers. Um, you know, I had a, a good time there. It was, I think it was a tough situation in that you're kind of backing up. I came in, and they wanted kind of almost insurance for Perro Cameron. He had had some injuries the year before, and mm. uh, they weren't quite sure you know, how he was going to go that year, um, which was tough because Perro Cameron's coming off, you know, being at the World Champs All-Star 5 and, um, you know, super talented, quite possibly one of the strongest players I've ever played against, really high IQ. So it's kind of, you're, you're in kind of in this mold where you're an import, you're expected to produce, but you're not, you know, you're getting kind of inconsistent minutes at times and we probably obviously New Zealand Breakers being a new franchise as well trying to still find their identity and uh, you know long story short I think before the season started they had tried to get Marcus Timmons um, 
before they signed me, and he obviously signed with Cans that year back at Cans. And, um, and then when he got released by Cans, and we were kind of struggling, um, I think it was just naturally they were going to try and make, they were going to make that change and see if they could jumpstart a season. It was kind of my first foray into you know basketball as a business. If you're not producing, um, you know I was probably young, inconsistent at times as well. So it was it was a good learning experience, but it was it was a hard. It was a hard one to go through. You know, I was pretty dejected after I got released, but, um, you know, I think it, it kind of set me up for, for the rest of my career as well. Because you then went back to the Seabull with the Bendigo Braves. You won the ABA National Championship. You were named the MVP of the conference grand final. Was that a bit of vindication? Yeah, I think I'd already agreed to go back and play. Um, and back to Bendigo um, before I got released by New Zealand. That was kind of the plan. And, uh, it, you know, I guess it was it was just a chance to continue to play and give it one more shot to get to get back to the NBL. That was my and, and the coach at the time, Wayne Larkin, said, look, we'll do everything we can to he had, had some NBL contacts as well um, to try and try and get back. So I guess it was just kind of a new challenge, a new team. And, um, you know, it was a great, great group of guys. I think uh, Ben Harvey, our point guard, he banked in a shot in the uh, in the semi-final, national semi-final, actually against, it was actually against Marcus Tennant, so it was a bit of a uh, interesting one there. Oh, funny well. situation. Um, and then uh, and then we go on, and, and we were actually down by 15 or 16 at halftime, so exact opposite of the year before, um, and we came back and won in the second half to get the, the national title, so that was a special time, and um, you know I was grateful that uh, I got that opportunity and, make, and was able to make the most of it. Absolutely. And then the year after, you get your opportunity to be signed by Perth, where you made a name for yourself, the scoring machine. When you signed for Perth in 2005, did you ever expect you would be there for 12 years, finish your career there, win the MVP the first six seasons, your time there, and also every year you were in the NBL with the Wildcats, you played finals? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, after the experience with the New Zealand Breakers, I was just happy uh, to have a job and, and get a second opportunity. I think, you know, you're, the chances of be, being a, an import in the Seabull, in the second division in Australia, you kind of get, uh, I guess, labeled as a, uh, not an inferior import, but kind of that second tier import. Um, to get an opportunity to go to the NBL is, is pretty rare. Uh, but then to get cut and then get a second opportunity is almost non-existent. So um, I guess rare. for me, it's a little bit, a little bit extra motivation there to go, go make the most of it. Um, extremely grateful that the Wildcats gave me that opportunity. You know, they brought me over for a trial. Um, just happened to be. Uh, I've told this story a, a few times, but I don't know if a lot of people know, but. The reason I got the trial was the Wildcats at the time had a ticket for Lucas Walker to come over and try out with them. He was, but he decided to go back to college. He was living in Melbourne at the time, and so they called my coach and said, "Look, we've got this ticket um, from Melbourne to Perth. Um, we don't want it to go to waste. Do you think Sean would be happy to come over here and give a trial?" Um, and so that uh, that kind of kickstarted that whole thing. So. Uh, you, you know, you're kind of kicking yourself when you look back on your career to, that all started with that. And then, uh, and then you're sitting here 12 years later and, uh, you know, able to retire um, with the championship and, and play for a club that, uh, you know, and we're not just talking about any club in the NBA. We're talking about the Wildcats, who uh, arguably are the, the best organization in the, uh, in the NBA with the history and the success that they've had. And I just want to ask you, what is it about the Perth Wildcats that is just so great? Because I have to say, I really admire everything the Perth Wildcats are. 34 consecutive finals appearances, 10 championships. The next best team is Melbourne United or Melbourne Tigers, who have won five. Just produced so many amazing players. Ricky Grace, obviously Bryce Cotton, James Crawford, Tiny Pinder, Scott Fisher, yourself. The list goes on. And it seems to me... Whenever I've listened to an interview with you or a press conference or people talking about you, you you respect the jumper, you respect the history, you respect the culture, and you're very proud to be a Perth Wildcat. What is it about the club that is just so, so great? Look, I think there's a few things. I don't think you can just put it down to one. I think, first off, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of pride here in WA. 
um, with the Wildcats, and so you sense that around town that uh, you know this is uh, this is their team. They're going to support it, and uh, and they do support it. They come out, you know. RAC Arena, which was Perth Arena, um, is getting 12, 13, 14,000 fans on a weekly basis. That's that's intimidating for an opposition and uh, a huge advantage um, when you're playing at home in front of that many fans. Second, I think it is the culture. Um, you know, there's so many former players that are still around. You still got Andrew Walhoff around, and, and Ricky Grace is, is here. And, um, there's just so many guys, Mike Ellis, that have kind of laid that foundation for the club that are still involved. Uh, you know, when I came over, Wahoff was the owner at the time. And, uh, you know, I think we started out the season two and five, and he gave us a spray that I've never seen. Um, I think we won the next six games. And you just kind of, that was kind of my first taste of being part of an organization that's bigger than any of our ourselves. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, I think they have a, um, you know, to respect the, the tradition and the, the prod. And, and there's a bit of pressure, I think, you know, when you've made the finals that many times, you don't want to be the, the, the group that le- lets it down for everyone else. So, uh, you know, and I think the other thing is they just, they recruit on character as well. And if uh, you don't fit into the, the mold, um, you know, a guy like Greg Heyer is a perfect example. He, you know, he, you don't look at him and say that he's going to set the world on fire just by his skill set, but it's just commitment to the team and the teammate that he is um, sets a tone for, for everyone else that, that wears that jumper. And uh, there's a lot of pride when you, when you put on the red jersey. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's half time. Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Just when you mentioned that Andrew Vlahov spray, I don't expect you obviously to go into great detail, but but what sort of was the gist of what he was saying? And, and is it true he said he's going to sack everyone if they don't stand up? Look, it, it has been a number of years. I just remember him attacking everyone individually um, at some point. And that, and that was the, the coach included, um, Scott Fisher at the time, who he was, you know, teammates and, and good mates with. Um, but just, you know, yeah, I mean, we knew that if we didn't turn things around, um, that you wouldn't have a spot at the Wildcats in, in the future. Um, and, uh, and if you've ever spent some time around Hawk, you knew uh, he meant what he said as well. So, it was uh, it was one of those things where uh, ship up or shape out, and uh, fortunate um, we, uh, we we started to get things together, and uh, we actually kind of went a bit small ball. Put Tony Rommelson at the five, and we had a guard at the time, David Bailey, who's probably still the quickest guy I've ever played with. But he's, he was tiny; he was five foot six, um, so we kind of needed to play to his advantage as well. So going small ball really helped us. I guess got us into the finals. We we made it to the semis that year, but um, it was um, yeah, there, it was this was stressful times. And I guess for me, I was just happy I made it to the end of the season. I think after what uh, what happened in New Zealand, um, and then we start the the season slow. It was uh, it, 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 it was tough times and a good introduction to me about uh, what being a Wildcat player meant. Was that your first season where you were bundled out in the semifinals against Melbourne United, who back then were still the Tigers? third 
quite a bit higher than us and then yeah went on to play against the Melbourne Tigers and uh yeah they were just they were just too tough for us I think they were a step ahead of us but you know we um I think we're probably fortunate to get into the semifinals that year yeah because back then it was only three teams who missed the finals so it was a bit of a weird setup yeah it was and that's probably where pretty lucky um you know the Wildcats at the time probably financially weren't as strong as strong as they are now um because you know we're back playing in a smaller stadium um, at Challenge Stadium, so it was, um, you know, the, the finances of the club were a little bit uh, wider those days than they are these days, but it was, um, it, you know, it was it, pretty fortunate to keep that streak alive, even though we finished seventh. Sean, I just want to talk about 2008. By then, you'd played around about 100 games for the Wildcats. You'd established yourself as a prime player within the NBL. That was the year you got naturalised and you represented Australia at the 2008 Olympic Games. Do you get a call from Brian Gorgian telling you you're, you're in the team? And as someone who obviously is from the USA, what is it like to put that jumper on to represent Australia? I assume it would be a little bit different to a player that is born in Australia. Yeah, look, it's um, it was one of those things where after my first season with the Wildcats, they, they approached me, I guess similar to probably what they did with um, Ricky Grace and Scotty Fisher, um, as far as uh, making them naturalized, and um, and so they said, "Look, do you, is this somewhere you want to be long term?" I said, "Look, I love my season here." And so we started exploring that, and I actually got um, I got rejected my first application. We had to appeal, um, and then uh, and then yeah, I got my my citizenship January of that year, um, and uh, yeah. Just happened to be 08, an Olympic year. Um, I played really well in the finals against Brian Gorgian's team, the Sydney Kings. Um, so I think that kind of helped my case. Um, and then I was playing over in the offseason Puerto Rico, and when Gorgian called, said, "Look, we'd love you to come trial with uh, with the Olympic team." And uh, you know, when you get that opportunity, you, you can't pass that up. And uh, so I was fortunate to go into into training camp. I think it helped me that I was I was still playing at the time. You know, in the off season, sometimes you can come into those scenarios not and I and I'd heard things that you know Gorgian was it, it was it was a tough campaign. You had to come in shape. You, you know, he set some pretty high standards. So it was uh, you know it was, it was a tough process. We had we brought in I think probably thirty or forty guys, um, windled it down, and then you also had the guys that you knew were already on the team coming back from Europe and, and obviously at the time Andrew Bogut was playing the NBA so and, and you can only have one naturalized guy as well so we went and did a tour in Europe and then uh, they finally announced the team and you know I was fortunate to, to make that team it was uh, an incredible experience and um, you know I guess I just grown to love love Australia and uh, somewhere I could see myself long term so it, I, you know it probably was a little bit different grow up you know dreaming of putting on the the green and gold but uh tremendous amount of respect for uh what it meant to to be on the australian national team and and, and to represent and play with some of the best players that you know have come out of australia patty mills andrew bogut joe ingles just uh incredible experience to uh see what those guys in the level olympic basketball and, that, and that's the other thing to play the olympics i mean there's only you know, there's only 12 teams that get to play in the Olympics, 12 countries. Um, it's pretty, pretty special. 144 players in all of the world get to, to get to represent their country and play at the Olympics. So I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty proud to be able to put on the green and gold. Absolutely. And what about that quarterfinal against the USA? You go out 116.85. Could you explain to me about what it was like to come up against the likes of LeBron James and the late Kobe Bryant? Yeah, I mean, it, we actually played them in a, uh, a match right before the Olympics, um, and we played them probably, I think, the closest that they had anyone, even leading into Olympics and during the Olympic campaign. I think we ended up losing by 11, um, and I wasn't playing a lot of minutes with the national team. I was kind of that spark plug off the bench if, uh, if everyone else was having a tough night, but um, it was a little surreal, to be honest, uh, to growing up in the USA. Uh, you're probably out of the realm of possibilities to, to make the Olympic national team uh, when you're trying to compete against Kobe Bryant and, and LeBron James. But, uh, you know, I tell the story that in the preseason or in the 
lead up to the Olympics. I, I got in the game the last minute of the game, and here I'm thinking, oh, you know, my mates back at home in, in the U.S., they're, they're going to be watching this game, see me playing against, you know, LeBron James. And, um, I, got the, I got the ball with about 30 seconds to go, dribbled the length of the court, thought I was going to score, and um, LeBron James sprints from half court and just rejects my shot <laughs> into the first row. So he... Uh, he denied my chance to score against Team USA, but uh, it was uh, yeah, it, it was such a moment to play against uh, the, the Team USA and, and just kind of see the, that what that level is like. It was it was fun fun to be a part of. Did those guys say anything to you? Did you have any dialogue? No, I spoke to a li- uh, you know a few of them uh, before the Olympics. Um, there, you know, I'm not sure they 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 knew kind of my story and my background. They probably thought I was just another. Um, guy who grew up in Australia and, and represent the, uh, the Australian Olympic team. I'm not sure they knew uh, I grew up in, in America, but uh, I definitely uh, enjoyed the challenge. And, and it, it was good to see that level of, of play and um, so close up, be able to uh, go up against it. Just, and just to see that, I think, um, you know, the skill level of those guys is incredible, but I don't think you the Australian national team is too far off it. And uh, you look at, uh, you know, obviously they beat Team USA last time they played them. So I think Australian basketball is, is pretty well respected around the world now. Yeah, I think it's now starting to get the attention it deserves, whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, it probably didn't get as much as what it gets now in terms of the respect. No, I would, I would, I would, I would say that. Now, you know, the, the one thing that was pretty special was just to see Paddy Mills. That was kind of his coming out party. As well, I think he had 20 points. They had Chris Paul, Jason Kidd, um, and here this little guard that no one had really heard of from Australia is, is filling it up against the best uh, players, and not only the best players, but those guys are elite defenders as well. So it was it was good to kind of see that uh, that level of play from Patty Mills um, against some of the best. A couple of years later, you become co-captains with Brad Robbins of the Perth Wildcats, taking over from Paul Rogers, and you win your first championship under Rob Beveridge. The likes of Kevin Lish, Luke Shensha, Damien Martin, and Jesse Wagstaff. What is it like to actually reach the pinnacle of your domestic career, to win a championship in Australia with the Perth Wildcats? 24 point lead for Perth. They are going to win the NBL Championship of 2010. The Perth Wildcats become the most successful team in NBL history. They have won five. NBL championships. No other club has done that. Oh, look, I think um, I think when you go come to the Wildcats, uh, you know, every preseason they're they're not talking about making the finals. They're talking about winning titles. And uh, you know, we hadn't done that up until that point. We had, had some good teams, but just had got over the hump and then brought in Rob Beveridge and. You know, he brought in a, a lot of different guys. We only kept a couple guys from the year before, so I'm not, not sure we really thought that first year was going to be a championship year, but we were playing some great basketball at the end. It was a, a really close uh, season. We ended up finished top of the ladder only by one game, I think, so it wasn't, um, you know, we, we were probably up and down throughout the year, but I think it just kind of... Uh, more a sense of relief. It just kind of validated uh, your time at the Wildcats. I think if you came over here and you played for so many years and had won a championship, um, you know, when you got Ricky Gray sitting there with four and, and Scotty Fisher and um, Andrew Lawhoff with all these championships and the banners all around, you kind of felt this pressure that we, we needed to get one. And so that, that first one was pretty special. Because that was the biggest drought for Perth. They were in 2000, they won one, and then they hadn't won one for 10 years. So that's that's pretty rare for the Wildcats to go 10 years without one. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's probably, I think, you know, the, the club probably wasn't as strong financially as it had been in the past. And um, it was, so there, there was, there was some tough, tough times in there, but, uh, you know, I credit Rob Beveridge, who really kind of brought in, you know, I remember when he telling me, you can bring me back, but, you know, we're going to change the whole thing. Um, and we've got two defensive guards and Brad Robbins and Damian Martin. Um, I was just kind of wondering where the scoring's going to come from. But, man, I love playing with those two guys. They just uh, Their defensive intensity is second to none. And uh, it, was, it was a fun way to play. We were pressing. We were getting after guys. And uh, just, you know, the, the league had just gone back 
system really uh, played into, uh, you know, having kind of a two-headed monster at the point guard that could just be a tag team on the defensive end. Two years after that championship, you go out to New Zealand Breakers in, in the grand final series. And that was the year, the year after, where you, you had that serious injury. What was the damage done, and did you ever fear it might have been your career over? With his season over, injured Wildcat star Sean Redditch could spend up to another week in South Australia. The Cats co-captain suffered a dislocated hip in yesterday's one-point loss to the 36ers. The Wildcats home without the points and without their co-captain. Sean Redditch left behind as he recovers from surgery. The devastated skipper to remain in Adelaide for up to a week after surgeons discovered his injury was worse than first thought. Well, look, I think... Um... Yeah, it was. I mean, I was pretty lucky in my career. I, 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 up until that game that I got injured uh, against in, in Adelaide, was um, I hadn't missed a game I think since, since since I started with the Wildcats. So I think at the at the time, I think a few games before, someone had told me, "Oh, you know, you're the you, you're current record holder for most consecutive games in the NBL." Which uh, I wish they wouldn't have told me that, but. Um, and then I go down with kind of my first serious injury that I've had in my career, um, dislocated fractured hip. So it's a, it's a pretty rare injury. Um, and the doctors pretty much told me my career was done um, and that, you know, I'd probably have a hip replacement in the next year or two um, in, in order just to kind of run around with the with your kids down, down the track. So... It was, yeah, it was an eye-opener for me. I haven't really dealt, you know, I've dealt with rejection. I've dealt with being fired and, and told, uh, you know, you're not wanted. But I hadn't really dealt with a, a serious injury like that that would, you know, threaten your career. And, you know, when that's your livelihood and that's what you've kind of done for so long, it was uh, it was definitely a shock to the system. But uh, it gave me some, I guess, some motivation to, uh, I guess, to prove, prove the doctors wrong. So did you ever consider retiring? Oh, look, I, I don't think I said I'm deaf. I've said I'm going to do everything I can to, to get back out on the court. If it doesn't happen, obviously, you know, you, you, you're, you're playing at a super high level. You can't just uh, be running out there with one leg. So it was, uh, it, it gave me an extra drive to get back on the court. And sometimes when things are taken away from you um, so unexpectedly, it, uh, I guess it just kind of renews your, your passion for the game. So. I was fortunate. I had a second surgery, went back to America, and uh, had an outstanding surgeon who uh, I think uh, I credit him for, for saving my, my career and, and allowing me to get back out on the court again. Absolutely, because you, you, you went on to win another three championships, so it would have been a shame, obviously, if you if you hung up the boots then. Yeah, I think it was, it was a hard one. I was probably having one of my best seasons in the NBL at that time as well, so... Um, and uh, it, so, you, you know, you're kind of in the prime of your career. I just turned 32 days before the injury. Uh, kind of felt like I still had quite a few years where I could have um, been playing at a pretty high level. Um, so it kind of takes you back. I, you know, I probably never had the explosiveness that uh, I, that I had. I, you know, I was never a, a super explosive athlete, but I think I probably lost a little bit of my, my explosiveness. Um, but I just had to you know, compound that with probably being a little bit smarter player and, and probably allowing guys like Kevin Lish and other guys to really kind of carry the load and, and just kind of pick it up, kind of be that second and third option and be the first option and probably made us a better a better team in, in that regard as well. I could kind of be the, the guy that, um, it, you know, wasn't always the, the first option down on the court and, and still, but I knew at times when I needed to step up, I could be. Yo, yo, it's three-quarter time here on A5Q, and, you know, this is just, this episode's just got a bit of a basketball feel, so let's just keep it b-ball, honestly. Let's keep it NBL. In the next couple of weeks, I've got another special guest coming on the show. It's Andrew Vlahov, who is a Perth Wildcat, an Australian basketball legend. He came on the show to talk about his career with the Perth Wildcats and the Australian Boomers. It was awesome to have him on. Here's a little snippet. Whilst we won the pre-season, our start to the season was terrible. Um... And I think we were at best 500. And this happened in the Canberra Cannons home gym, that coldest place on earth to play basketball. But we just lost to the Cannons. And um, and we had, you know, this is the 95 team. And we called a team meeting and I asked Adrian to leave the room. And 
to a man, we went around the table. We stood there. We were freezing. Um, we were icing and down after the game, but we were freezing. But we went around the room and we said, it stops here. Um, the accountability goes up uh, a million percent. And from that locker room, we felt like we had expunged whatever demons were haunting us. Um, and we got back to playing some of the best basketball I think we've played. I think we went on an 11-game winning streak and we got a swagger happening that uh, and, a, and a cohesiveness that was really, really special. You know, everyone then understood and accepted their roles and I think that wasn't the case uh, in the in the teething process, you know, leading up to that game in Canberra. If you thought that sounded good, wait till the full episode drops in a couple of weeks' time. It was great to chat with AV. He's a good bloke and was a very, very good player as well. One of the best we've ever seen here in the NBL. But for the time being, let's get back to Sean Redditch. And what about those two grand final series where you lost to, to the New Zealand Breakers? That was obviously... New Zealand, fantastic team. Cedric Jackson, Tom Abercrombie, Mika Vakona, CJ Bruton. To go down in consecutive seasons, that must have left a sour taste in your mouth. To go down to the same team. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was, it was hard. I mean, all credit to them. They, they were a fantastic team. And, uh, you know, some of those series and games would come down to one shot. Uh, you know, it was, it was tough. Uh, you know, I think one year we had Damian Martin had gotten injured in the uh, semifinals, and then I think the next year Kevin Lish was basically running on one leg. So, uh, you know, it just shows you how tough it is to win a title. Not only do you have to be the best team, but you got to be healthy as well. Um, and, uh, you know, what a great rivalry it was against the Breakers. I think we both had a tremendous amount of respect and knew that uh, it was uh, it was just going to be a battle. I mean, having to go up against Micah McConnell, one of the hardest working players ever played in the NBL, um, was uh, you know a, a fun challenge, but man, you you knew you had to you your work cut out for you to keep him off the off the glass and, and rebounding, and it was just going to be a, a battle each time. So I think we both made each other better, um, but probably uh, it, it was it was tough. I mean, it, to get all the way to the grand final and lose, it's uh, it, it's it's pretty hard. So was it vindication when you won it against them two years later in in that fifteen sixteen season? ask you that do you look at it and obviously you're proud to have won four championships but do you do you look at that and say I'm proud I did that or is it more yeah I won four but I could have I could be a six-time championship player <laughs> uh, look, you don't want to be too greedy I'll, I'll <laughs> I just want to talk about the 13-14 season. That was sort of a changing of times. You relinquished the captaincy to Damien Martin. Rob Beveridge and Kevin Lish leave the club. The great Trevor Gleeson comes in and you get James Ennis and Jermaine Bill. What was it like to play with those two guys and to win a championship against the 36ers who at the time were obviously a very good team, but the likes of Nathan Sobey, Daniel Johnson, Mitch Craig, these guys were, were still a bit young. They weren't as renowned as what they are now. 
Could you just talk about that season and what it was like to play with, with Ennis and Bill? Yeah, I think um, it was. I mean, you, you obviously brought in Trevor Gleason. He's got a whole other system that you're trying to learn. Um, and then you bring in a James Ennis who, you know, I still say, you know, I don't like to talk about favorite teams, but I just say that, that was the most talented team I played on. Um, you know, this we came out of the gates. I think we're won 11 of our first 12 games and James Ennis was just a whole nother level player to anyone else we had had the NBL at that time. He was kind of the one that kind of opened those that door um, to go from the NBL to the NBA. So I give a lot of credit to him. And, you know, he was kind of a second round pick and came out. He just was, you just kind of saw what an NBA athlete is. and Not necessarily skill-wise, but his just speed and athleticism. It was a fun team to play on. I, you know, you just, there was times when you're on a team and you rock up to a stadium and you say, I know we're going to win. And that was one of those teams. Like if we were on and we were switched on, we were going to win because we just had him and Jermaine Beal and Damian Martin in his prom getting nine steals in a game. Uh, but that was a tough series against the 36ers. You know, a lot of credit to them. Um, Daniel Johnson, such a tough player. And, and Sobe, love the way he plays. Mitch Creek was kind of still fun in his, um, I guess, role in the NBL. And, and, you know, he was a year or two away from becoming a real dominant player. But um, credit to them. They, you know, they, they, we had to fight for it as talented as we were. We had to fight for it to be able to, to knock off the 36ers. It was, a, it was a great series. I do think the 36ers were very gallant in defeat. No, they, they were. And, you know, they... It was, it was a good atmosphere as well. I mean, going to that game too in Adelaide, uh, it was it was it was it was awesome. Uh, you know, the crowd was into it. It came down to the wire, and, and they got us in game two. And we knew we really had switched on. It was probably, and that's where the home court advantage really comes in. I mean, it's tough to back up two days later, and and uh, and then be able to get up and play in, in front of thirteen thousand fans on the road. And that's probably you know that home court advantage really is such an advantage here in WA, but, um, you know, 36ers, they were, uh, they were a tough team. We were the two best teams all, all year, and um, we really had to play well to, to get that win. Absolutely, and what about your final season, 2016-17? I've watched your press conference, the retirement, very emotional, especially when you were talking about your family. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess just to start out, um, just to officially announce um, that this will be my last season with the Wildcats. I'm going to retire from Wildcats and the NBL. Although it's been, uh, I guess, a tough decision for me, I guess in my heart, I feel like, um, sorry, I can't look at my family at this moment. <laughs> How special is it for your last season to be a championship winning season and for the last game you ever play to win another grand final and also to play with someone like Bryce Cotton in the second half of the season? Yeah, I mean, what a what a what a roller coaster that season was. I mean, we were sitting dead last. We bring in this Bryce Cotton, um, and uh, you know, quite possibly one of the best players to ever play in the NBL is uh, you know, brought us from last to, to first. And yeah, I just consider myself extremely lucky. I mean, very few guys get to walk off the court last game in the NBL, win a championship. And uh, get to celebrate with your teammates. And I just remember waking up the next morning. There was there was usually this drive that I had the next day, even after a grand final. I needed to get back to the gym, and it was just I knew it was time. I think uh, I was just you know I just kind of it was kind of that release where you know I was pretty pretty proud of um, what I helped to to accomplish uh, my time uh, in my career, and just said you know I gave everything I had. Uh, be able to walk off as, as a champion. I'm, I'm, you know, forever grateful to, to Bryce Cotton for uh, coming over to Australia. So we we hadn't signed him. I don't think that would have would have been the case. But yeah, just in awe of him. 45 points uh, elimination game, or I guess game three of, of a grand final. What a what a special special game for him. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was fun to be a part of, and you know, just just be able to play your role. I mean, it it, it can be tough for guys that are so used to you know, dominant scoring to kind of later in your career to kind of adjust to that. And uh, there was some hard times where you are adjusting, but, you know, it makes it easy when you're part of a, a great organization, a great team, and you're winning with the Wildcats. 
And also, you became the third Wildcat behind Ricky Grace and, and James Crawford to play 350 games. I'm sure that comes with a great sense of pride. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a longevity thing to it. Um, you know, to be able to play with the one club for so long, uh, probably would have liked to have started my career maybe with Wildcats. I would have been nice to just have one. But maybe uh, that, that little year in New Zealand gave me a little bit extra motivation when I, when I made it out west. But it was, uh, yeah, not too many guys, especially imports, are, are sticking with the club that long. So, um, yeah, grown to love the club and, and you know, proud to, to represent them for, for that long and, and still be a part of the community. So it's, um, yeah, pretty pretty special that I've uh, been part of uh, the Wildcats uh, for so long. And just to close up now, Sean, I've got, in fact, I've got three questions for you and I'll ask them all in one hit. Who is the best player you have ever played with and why? Who is the best player you've played against and why? And who is the best coach you've ever played under and why? Oh, those are some uh, good questions there. Um, I'm going to say in the NBL, the most talented player I've played with was James Ennis. I think uh, Bryce Cotton would be real close to there. I just think that the athleticism, his ability to um, really dominate above the rim, uh, probably maybe puts James Ennis skill-wise. I don't think there's many more better than Bryce Cotton. Uh, but I think uh, he's probably the best player I've played with in the NBL. Guy I went up against, um, I'm going to go actually when I played with Australia and we played against Team USA. And I, I say this was probably the team, the guy that probably impressed me most was Dwayne Wade. Okay. Um, I thought he was the toughest guy to defend um, and match up in. Against uh, against that team, um, and coaching wise, geez, that's a that's like trying to pick your pick your favorite child. Um, <laughs> I love that. Know, there's some days, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, one, and some it's going to be the other. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I'll, I'll, I'll say my probably the system that I enjoyed the most was you know that probably that first year when uh, when Bevo came over and we were just pressing with Brad Robinson. And Damian Martin and Kevin Lish up there, and, and, and uh, you know, I just I love the way we played as far as the high energy, high pressure. Give me forty minutes of, of all out effort. I just uh, I really enjoyed playing that style. Uh, but tremendous amount of respect for for all the coaches that I played under. You know, I was pretty fortunate. You know, to win so many championships with with Trevor Gleason and just uh, you know what what he brought, the discipline he brought to. To, to the team and, and was able to you know, kind of mold guys in a system that's, you know, he's, he's running the flex offense, which many people think is, is you know, 20 years past its prime, but, uh, you know, results speak for itself. And, uh, you know, he was able to mold all these guys into that and, and get the best out of us. So, uh, you know, I was pretty fortunate to play, play for some, some tremendous coaches in my time. Beautifully answered, Sean. That's all we got time for today. Look, not only... Have you played almost 400 games? Not only were you the captain, club MVP, won four championships, you're also a lovely bloke to talk to. So I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now out of professional basketball. Appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.